Hey, Bitcoin Magazine podcast listeners. We're excited to announce a new sponsor of the show, CoinMine. Now don't skip through this because it's really cool, and I'm honestly not just saying that. The CoinMine one is, well, awesome. It's the first plug-and-play crypto device that turns your electricity into Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies at the press of a button. All you have to do is plug it in, connect to Wi-Fi, and pick the coin you want to mine. It's that easy. And what I really like about it is that it's got a sleek design and it's really quiet. And if you're worried about electricity costs, don't. It uses less power than a PlayStation. Seriously, these things are really cool and super easy to earn crypto without all the hassle. Oh yeah, it's also a Bitcoin Lightning node, so you can send and receive Bitcoin with anyone, anywhere, for free. So what are you waiting for? Head over to coinmine.com bitmag to get $50 off your CoinMine 1. Again, that's coinmine.com B-I-T-M-A-G. And don't worry, we'll post a link in the show notes in case you forget. Hey, what's up, guys? And welcome back to the podcast. I'm Graham. And over there, sitting across from me is uh, Dave. He's back from vacation. Hey, everyone. Glad to be back. How was your vacation, Dave? Well, Graham, it started as a normal fishing trip in the Atlantic. Sounds fun. But we didn't know. Graham, we didn't know. <laughs> Is everything okay? I can't. We can't talk about it here. Not on the podcast. Uh, let's just let's just do the normal intro. Okay. Okay. You had me a little worried, but uh, you seem to be in one piece. Hopefully, everybody else that was with you is also still in one piece. Glad to be back. <laughs> okay. Well, while you were gone, uh, I kind of took the reins and uh, reached out to Alex Gladstein. And was fortunate enough to get him on the phone to talk about uh, an essay that he just wrote on the moral case for lightning, which is great, by the way. And actually, Dave, you know Alex uh, from the past, correct? Yeah, he invited Bitcoin Magazine to the Oslo Freedom Forum uh, in New York about a year ago. Okay. Um, and the Oslo Freedom Forum is a, an event series they do, uh, the Human Rights Foundation to connect uh, technologists, financiers, and civil rights uh, advocates, political dissidents, people who have been in close societies and had some sort of human rights violation happen to them. So it's a way to bring a sort of create a platform uh, for them and and bring attention to their causes. Right. And we actually did a, uh, you know, I didn't go to the conference, but uh, I know that you've been in contact with Alex for a while, but we did some shows uh, on another show that we used to do. But um, there's some really cool Old stories. Old dialogues. There. Old dialogues. Um, there's some really cool stories there, and Alex is doing really cool work, um, which sort of, you know, I think you mentioned closed societies uh, before we started recording recording and how he's trying to bring a voice to them correct yeah um this essay is more focused on uh first world societies and specifically surveillance and how our information is being sold to the highest bidder more or less uh in an attempt to sell us just more stuff um it's not exactly nefarious but he's basically saying it's a slippery slope and um the article is really really cool i'm really glad that that I had the chance to talk to him. Yeah, and and just to give our listeners some background, uh, Alex works for the Human Rights Foundation, uh, which is in addition to doing the Oslo Freedom Forum, the Human Rights Foundation, or HRF, is basically a nonprofit that promotes and protects human rights globally. 
um, with a special focus on closed societies. Right, right, right. Um, and of course, uh, cryptocurrencies kind of play into you know protecting our basic rights and, and our privacies and things of that nature. Um, so again, really, really glad to have him on the show. Uh, super, super sharp guy. Uh, again, he's doing amazing work and um, not going to waste any more of your time. Let's jump right into the interview with Alex Gladstein. Alex, thanks so much for uh, coming on the show. My pleasure. Happy to be here. How, uh, how are things going? Well, you know, they're going well. I think <laughs> we are constantly reminded by the need for private payments in our lives. <laughs> Great segue. Um, I love the article. Um, I've read it twice. I read it when I first reached out to you and I, I read it again today just to, to jog my memory again. I love the intro story. Can you just kind of summarize, you know, what led you into to writing this article? Yeah, sure. I mean, it, it's basically what led me to write the article was a series of interactions with let's call it surveillance capitalism. And another one happened to me yesterday. I mean, they're, they're pretty constant. Oh yeah. Um, the one that the one that happened to me yesterday was I, I again I used my um uh you know Chase Visa card to buy something at at a Whole Foods mm-hmm. and um you know some minutes later I received an advertisement for for a similar product on my Twitter feed. Um, that one is less egregious though because I was using the like the the Whole Foods app, so I'm sure there's like all kinds of data pulled from that. Oh, the sure. The one that the, the one that was really shocking was the one I led the uh, uh, my recent essay on on the need for something like Lightning with, which was the fact that I walked into a pet food store and I I didn't you know I just had the Chase card. There was no like rewards programs or no other way to like that the, that the store knew who I was. And I, I bought a bag of dog food and then and, like these little treats that were like toothbrush shaped dog treats sure and i left the store and and you know the geolocation on my phone would not be enough to do what ha- what, what what would happen next which was um within 20 minutes or so i got an advertisement on twitter for like toothbrush shaped dog treats and you know again that if we're thinking it was the geolocation on my phone that was giving me away well it was a pet store it sold bird food and cat food and all kinds of different food right so the specificity was was too much so um, I looked into it and, and, you know, lo and behold, uh, Chase does actually, when you pry them, they, they do say that they disclose, um, all like your payment data to third parties. Right. So what's happening now is that like when you use your credit card for anything, which is so dominant for at least Americans, but also people around the world, you know, that transaction is then being exposed and shared with and profited from by a whole host of, uh, of people starting with your payment processor, but then extending to all kinds of folks that are trying to sell ads, you know, so that companies can sell you stuff. Right. And, you know, like, I, I think that we've kind of come to accept that as like, Ooh, that's a little creepy or weird, but it's just sort of how things are. Um, but I, you know, I think that there's a slippery slope to that, uh, especially in countries where the government is allowed to, you know, have more control over, over payments and social media, like in a place like China. Right. You know, in America, we've got dozens and dozens of um, banks and card companies. So things are a little dis- distributed. We do have the Bank Secrecy Act. So, um, you know, banks are obliged to, to give that information to the government. But but in general, like, you do have a little more protection over your information in, in certain instances than right. in a place like China, where the government is just like harvesting your data 
from directly from this app called WeChat, which has essentially replaced um, pretty much any sort of third-party payment software you'd use. Instead, you're just using WeChat. So it replaces both stuff like Venmo and PayPal and things like your credit cards um, and even like other things like wires and loans, like, like virtually all of your payments and monetary activities that you would do, you do through one app. So it's like super easy for that company and therefore the Chinese government to, to have a holistic understanding of your economic behavior. And I think what's really important for people to understand is that uh, your, your spend or your, your, your payment habits say more about you than your words, right? So, right. Oh, yeah. um, you know, when people are eavesdropping or spying on us right now and they're listening to this conversation, there's a lot of fluff. There might be a lot of pleasantries. You know, th there's a lot of work that goes into picking out the important pieces, right? Um, spying on payments is way easier everything's, everything's important, right? You know, you know, we, we, we sort of tell, we, we give away our hand when we're, we're exposing all of our payments. So whether it's your concern about like growing kind of surveillance capitalism in the West or um, the more mutant version of that, which, which takes place under dictatorships where governments are not only spying on your payments, but also using your payments to start to shape your behavior. And based on your payments, you know, providing incentives and disincentives for you to become more loyal to the government. So in China, this is done with this like idea of social credit. So mm -hmm. um, depending on what you do with your payments, you get certain benefits or you get penalized in different ways. So right. re regardless of whether you're fighting the surveillance capitalism or the surveillance state, th there's, there is a need, I would say a moral need um, and, and a practical need uh, for us to have like a, a private, private payments in our lives. Sure. And I mean, you admit that, you know, ads here are relatively harmless. Um, could you dive in a little bit more into China's process and how they're a little more harmful and like the social credit system? Yeah. I, what I mean by that is like when your data, let's say when, when, when I make a payment to you or when you buy something at a store um, using, you know, a, a payment processor of some kind. And, and you know what, like, I think we need to pause a moment and just appreciate what cash does in our society. Oh yeah. Um, you know, like, look, when you withdraw cash from an ATM, okay, fine. Your bank knows that, you know, you withdrew X amount on, on X day. That's sure. it. They don't know anything else. So there's no way for a government to track what you do with that. And then you can go use that cash and, and buy various things with it. And, and you're not being a criminal, you're not being a bad person. You're just protecting your financial privacy. And I think people are underestimating uh, like, that kind of value that cash brings. Um, and I would certainly encourage people to use cash while they can. It's just, we have to understand that cash is disappearing on our planet and only 8% it is estimated of all daily financial tra transactions are done with paper or metal money. Almost everything's digital these days. So we're clearly headed in a direction where like people who are being born now, you know, are not going to use paper money meaningfully in their lives. Unfortunately, they're just not going to have that option. Both governments and companies are pushing um, for a all digital financial system because it's it's easier for them to make more money and, and have more control. So um, that is a good bridge to just getting into what's happening in China. So mm -hmm. the Chinese government is kind of accelerating the transition to cashlessness. Um, and in major urban cities in China today, in, in, you know, big metropolitan areas, um, everything is done using, again, this like sort of super app called WeChat, which dominates your phone. It's kind of like, it's kind of like an operating system. It's more than just an app. It has 
all the conceivable apps you could have in in the West, like everything from Uber to Amazon to Netflix to your banking account to your maps to your messaging to your Snapchat to um, your like shopping things. Like all of it is just like in one. Wow. Um, and it's super convenient, right? Like we always yeah. talk about this trade-off between privacy and rights and convenience. And this is that taken to the extreme. And because the information environment in China is so heavily censored, dissent against this is not really heard about. And people are like, well, of course I want this. This is great. I mean, if WeChat's like so much more evolved as, as a software than anything we have, like let's say in the United States, like it's so much more convenient and powerful, right? Um, but what you've done by like, allowing all of your activity to be to be sort of just like vacuumed up by one service provider um, is is helped build the most like staggering surveillance mechanism in human history so more than more than a billion people use this app every day wow and there's an advanced um, sort of big data analysis or what, what some people call AI which is starting to be used to supplement uh, humans uh, sort of spies and sensors um, so that there's like real-time surveillance and censorship so for example like you know when a famous chinese dissident dies or something like that like their name and any other construct of how you would put their name together is like immediately censored and in wechat you don't even know so it used to like tell you apparently several years ago when you would send a message through like let's say about tiananmen square or some other provocative thing in china like it would basically tell you that and this goes for like people who use it abroad too this is like there's two kinds of WeChat, right? There's the WeChat you get as a Chinese citizen from Chinese app stores. And then there's the, the kind you get from like, sure. if you're, if you're downloading it abroad, right? Sure. Yeah. Um, and either way, like, you know, it used to have some sort of error message if like, you know, it didn't go through due to the content, but now it's like, um, it doesn't even let even you know. You. Yeah. You're just like, don't wow. know. And, and the craziest part is that the, the surveillance is not just messaging. It's not just like, if you spell out a word, they're now doing real-time image and voice-based. So I'll give you an example. Like my friend showed me, a Chinese friend of mine showed me this image that her uncle sent her. And her uncle sent this. She has, again, she has two WeChat apps because she's like back and forth between the U.S. And, and Beijing. And it's like a picture of a bunch of flower petals, but they're arranged in a certain way where there's like, in, in China, uh, the Tiananmen Square is called 6-4 the six, four incident. Mm -hmm. So there's like four, four petals and six petals and eight petals and nine petals. And, and if you actually just look at it, the, it symbolizes six, four, 89, like it symbolizes the day for Tiananmen. So this was right. shared to her by her uncle, like, you know, in early June. And because she received that message, she didn't do anything. Her account was disabled. Okay. So, you know, part of that has to do with the fact that her uncle is being watched and, and like was a student protester back then, et cetera. But still, I mean, the fact that it's not just image, it's not just uh, messages like text. It's also image based. It's kind of crazy. And then the next level is even crazier. So, you know, you can just be like talking to your, your friends or having a phone conversation and that's being like live, um, the, monitored basically that, the, that content is being live monitored and transcribed um, wow. and being, and being live censored. So it's, um, it's pretty extraordinary. So the Chinese uh, system knows a lot more about you than just the basics. Um, so you can start to understand that they are gaining a real-time kind of picture of what all citizens are doing. And with increased, again, with increased capabilities due to big data analysis and, and increased sort of number crunching technology, increased quote-unquote right. AI technology, 
sure they're, they're better they're better better able to create this like digital footprint of you and th that's really what big brother is all about is is gaining as good of an understanding about you as possible and you right. all know a harari the historian who wrote sapiens and, and he often talks about this that these algorithms they know you better than you know yourself like even like in in the consumerist society here in the west we like we sit and we argue about like you know what with your wife maybe your husband about like what what movie you want to watch and it's like netflix already knows you know netflix is already <laughs> going to tell you you don't need to argue about it or like what do we want to eat tonight well like i'm pretty sure foursquare already knows that so yeah. he, he he's he's sort of jokingly you know pointing this out but like but it has a, a serious underside to it and um in china when when you're not just distributed across like a lot of different companies and a lot of different apps and and where like you know in a place like America, like companies can get in trouble, you know, they can get sued and they can get shut down and they can get fined for like consumer data mm -hmm. protection breaches, right? Like that right. we do have consumer protection laws here, et cetera. Um, that those like don't exist in China in the same way. So companies don't have to be careful about that sort of thing and they can just run rampant. So what you're seeing in China is like what happens if there's no rules regarding privacy or user data. And that's like these like two or three giant behemoth companies, which you have like this uncanny, like almost like, uh, almost like supernatural ability to like predict what uh, Chinese citizens are going to do, you know, every day. Jeez. And what they start to do is now that they know that um, they start to provide uh, in carrots and sticks or incentives or disincentives. So for example, if you buy diapers, you, you get you, your score, your citizen score or your social credit score, which is kind of like a social, it's sort of like a credit score in America, except right. um, it includes your friend circle and your behavior and your payments and your ethnicity. Oh and my God. Your, your gender and all these different things. Like it really includes like a whole picture of you, not just, not just whether you're paying your bills back on time and how much debt you have. Sure. So your social credit score, if you buy diapers, actually in some instances goes up because like they want to encourage like family life, right? Procreation. Okay. If you buy, if you Right. But if you buy cigarettes or alcohol, it may go down. Right. And that's just like a, a like a basic example. Um, like a moral score. Exactly. A morality so score. To, exactly. The Chinese Communist Party is trying to impose like a morality score. So so if you lead a good life and you never get in trouble and you never send any problematic messages to family or friends and you essentially self-censor completely um, to the point of like not even really thinking about ever challenging the government. That's how totally, you know, controlled and, and surveilled you are. Then you might have a good score and you can get good loans and good rates on loans. You can get fast track visas. You can send your kids to good schools, et cetera. So you'd be like a good citizen. There's so much to be gained there. There's like a lot to be blackmail. lost. Yeah. And there's a lot to be lost if you're a bad citizen. So I was reminded of this. I mean, this is something that dictatorships have always tried to do throughout history. You know, it, this, this has roots in what Mao did in China, where he set up like spies in different communities and villages and neighborhoods. And, you know, the okay. Castro regime in Cuba did the same thing. And of course, this was really popular during the Soviet Union. Um, there's a, an incredible um, film uh, about this that takes place in Stasi, Germany. Uh, I'm just pulling up the name of the film right now because... It's it's um, an incredible thing for your listeners to check out. Yeah. Uh, it's called The Lives of Others, and it's um, directed by Florian Donnersmark. It's an incredible movie, and, and there's this one scene where there's this guy, and his job is to spy on people. And apparently, during like the like early '80s, mid '80s, you know, um, East German Stasi regime, there's um, like it was like the most surveilled population per capita in, in history. Like one out of every fifty people was a spy. Right. So that's like almost on par with like North Korea today or something like that. So 
basically there's this guy and you know without giving anything away there's this scene where he's kind of just like watching and listening um to this family and you know a decision is made based on their conversation to like you know prevent that person from from getting into to a particular school let's say and, and this is something that happens in many different dictatorships and it always will happen but it's being augmented by technology now right mm-hmm. so the same kinds of technology that are allowing companies to target you immediately with like ads that seem spooky like that, that that sort of cross what eric schmidt calls the creepy line um that same kind of technology is being used to socially engineer a population of people who will never dissent or criticize their government and this is like the best fast track way to like steal people's freedoms and sovereignty and cement a dictatorship and that's as a human rights activist something we need to um fight uh with everything we have right right so I'm worried about the slippery slope where it takes us. This isn't some Black Mirror episode. What I've described is literally what's what's happening in China today, where whereby so much so that a friend of mine, again, another Chinese friend of mine, she was in China recently. And, you know, one of her friends who's Chinese was connected on WeChat to someone who was arrested for smoking pot. OK, um, which is certainly a crime in China. Oh, and, no. you know, like uh, about it. Well, you know, it's it's it's. But is- let's just, I'm just using a, a, a very harmless example, let's say. So, so her no, friend was yeah. arrested a day later, like a bunch of plays, plain clothes police came to her office and apprehended her actually. And, and, and seized her and disappeared her for like two weeks or something like that. Wow. Um, and when she came back, her, she basically told her friends that her 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 social credit score had been basically destroyed. She was she, she was no longer able to take out a loan or travel or, or buy a train ticket, and and she was sort of in like financial purgatory. So again, like this is what the regime will do to you uh, if, if if it considers you a miscreant or a troublemaker, right? Wow, over something um, just so and, harmless. Yeah, well, and, and you can you can imagine what 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 they would do to you if, if you actually protested against the regime or, or oh, tried yeah. to try to push for reform in any meaningful way. So, oh, yeah. so again, like, and, and payments are such a critical part of this, right? Like the fact that your payments are not private in China, the fact that your payments are all controlled by one entity, essentially or two entities and, and like the government has total control and surveillance over those things has led to that kind of society. So, you know, wherever you are, if you're not in China, we need to make sure we don't go down that road if you believe in human rights and freedom. Sure. Um, and that's why, like, even though these things seem harmless today in this surveillance capitalism society, um, where you go into a store and you buy something, you get hit for an ad a few minutes later, that, that's a presage of something that we don't want. That, that's, that's, a, that's a preliminary kind of, like, a symptom of a society that we don't want to, uh, we, we, we don't want to go down that road too much further. Sure. And really, the, the, the only way to be able to do that is, is to not have a, cent, a centralized payment processor, meaning like when you digitally transact with someone, assuming we're going to leave the cash society and go to the cashless society, you know, we, WeChat is like the, the ultimate end game payment processor because it's just so good at sucking up all of your data. Um, and it's, it's like the only game in town pretty much. But, you know, in the West, like we have to understand that all... Uh, payment processors are security holes, right? So anytime you do, you do a transaction digitally, uh, you know, your transaction is being, the data on that transaction is being uh, sucked up and held by, by a third, at least one third party, but usually two to three or four. You know, if you think about 
well, think about like making a payment. I mean, who's involved in, in you just using a credit card to buy something on the internet? Like, like at least Visa or MasterCard, the underlying credit card, right? Mm-hmm. And then the, the 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 bank, maybe Chase, and then maybe there's like a like a like a Stripe or a like a PayPal or something like that. And then there's and then there's the other person's, um, you know, the other person's bank. So so I mean, you you know, oftentimes. When you or a company, right? If you're if you're buying it through like an Amazon, so there could be as many as three to five to six different intermediaries between you and the person you're paying, right? In in a, in, a, in the digital society, right? And all of those people can can you know read and learn about um, uh, your transaction and start to like understand you know who you are and what your profile is. And we live in this world today where we all have these like centralized profiles, right? which are sure. tied together by email addresses and phone numbers and addresses. Right. So it's, we're just like sitting ducks here. Um, so obviously when I made that transaction at the dog food store, like, like Chase knew that it was me, not like some other person. Right. And you know, I have this big profile that it's been accumulating on me and, and it can sell that data to some company, which, you know, wanted to, you know, which, which then bought out an ad on, on Twitter, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So, there's a, there's a, there's a lot here and it's not just the social media company's fault, right? It's, it's the bank's fault and it's the system's fault. So what we need to do is figure out, Hmm, is there a way to do a digital transaction without a centralized payment processor? And, uh, you know, until 2009, there wasn't a way to do that, right? That, that was like inconceivable, but that was, that was the problem that Satoshi Nakamoto solved. So Bitcoin is, is the way to send a digital payment without a centralized payment processor. It is a way of, decentralizing the payment processing uh, mechanism. And, you know, while that was done originally, I, I think if you read the white paper, you know, in whatever way you want to read it, you know, obviously it was to create an alternative to central banking, right? And right, to sort right. of remove the power of the government from the, the, the creation and distribution of money. However, like what, what could be an equally important effect, uh, ripple effect of, of, of creating decentralized money is, is the fact that there's no longer... Uh, at least on 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 base layer Bitcoin, there's no longer like companies that are in the middle. You know, it, it disintermediates. So there's no longer like these financial middlemen between you and the person you're paying. So there's like way less opportunity to spy on you. And you add that to the fact that Bitcoin is 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 pseudonymous. Um, it gives you a little bit more privacy than the existing financial system. Uh, certainly, if if a government wants to use a lot of resources, it can do a chain analysis and, and look at the blockchain and figure out based on deduction and a bunch of other things, like kind of who you are, especially if you're not careful with your Bitcoin operational security. But um, at least it gives us a start, right? So I say in my essay that like Bitcoin is the, is the substrate for a private money network. Now, you know, the folks who created, uh, there's many, there's dozens of people who've been taking the, this, this idea of like something like a, a private payment network on top of Bitcoin. Um, but, you know, the folks working on Lightning today kind of take that ability a step further where you can like have this like settlement network, the Bitcoin base layer, which, which ultimately allows people to transact without a middle person, like a third party. And it allows us to have instant payments. It allows us to have voluminous amounts of payments. It allows us to have even more privacy. Right. So right. By nature of its design, the lightning network is uses a sort of an, a kind of onion routing encryption mechanism similar to the Tor network where um, y- your payment is done through a series of hops through, through third parties that don't know anything about each other. Right. So it's like if I'm sending a lightning 
payment to you, like it doesn't go just to you. It goes through a bunch of other people. And um, due to the way that like the, the onion routing works, like these layers of encryption come off kind of like as layers of an onion, right? So that the person at the end, you know, the person at the end may know everything about the thing they've received, but the people who, who helped get it there, um, they can't see what's in the package. They don't know. They don't know anything about it, right? They're right. just kind of pass-throughs. So essentially, so this is, this we're is, still this talking. Is a pretty, about, pretty brilliant design, right? So essentially, we're still talking about multiple parties involved, but we're encrypting that relationship to improve the privacy between those parties. Yeah, I mean, I'm still like, like, think of it this way. Let's be practical. Um, I go walk in the dog food store, and I use my phone, and I have a Lightning wallet on it. Like, let's say this is like in a year when some of this tech is like more mainstream, or maybe in two years. I try to, I try to flesh this out in, in, a, in a time frame in my essay right well, like let's let's say it's 2022 and i can walk into the dog food store using a non-custodial lightning wallet meaning like i've sent some bitcoin to a wallet on my phone um now you know that that bitcoin may be able to be traced to me in some way um but hopefully i've i'm pretty good at operational security and i you know i've minimally kind of like I've made it I made it so that the Bitcoin is is like not that traceable to me right like to sure. my best Minimizing efforts it. right yeah sure I've, I've, I've maximized privacy on that aspect right um but then when I make that lightning transaction the idea is that hopefully the the merchant pet food express or whatever will have their own lightning wallet and they'll just receive the lightning from me and it'll happen immediately and they'll like it because it's freaking cheap like there's no fees right sure um, essentially essentially no fees and it's immediate and it's final and there's like no, no, no returns or any of that stuff. So I think mer merchants will really like this thing. Um, <laughs> and I'll just like beep in or whatever, you know, I'll beep in, I'll pay, pay, pay the invoice and I'll leave. Right. Um, and the, the, like Pet Food Express won't see, you know, anything about me or my home address or my eye color, or my weight or whatever. They'll, they'll just see the fact that I've, paid an invoice right it's it's like literally like using cash right and now you know the, the and then and then you can see how this would really help us fight big brother in the surveillance state because they no longer you know there first of all there is no financial intermediary there is no payment processor that helps it's literally just me and the and the merchant and it's like use it's like a bare asset it's like paying with cash right so there's no yeah. opportunity for someone to exploit that transaction and then sell advertisements to me you know, the advertisement industry is not going anywhere, but it's just going to have to adapt to a different kind of like digital climate. Right. right. Um, now this, this is obviously for civil liberties, people very, this prospect of doing this is pretty exciting. I think there's a couple big obstacles that I try to get at in the piece. And I think the main one being probably at least in the near term is like, so what the hell's Fet Pet Food Express going to do with, um, you know, a bunch of, a bunch of sats that it's stacked during the day from lightning transactions. Right. Like, so okay. what, what are they going to do? So, you know, there's a couple of things they could do. Um, they could settle, uh, from, from lightning, you know, back through Bitcoin into, into fiat money, you know, once a day, once every couple of days to, to minimize volatility, they could do that. Um, they could also do it even faster, potentially using something like, um, like Blockstream's liquid network, right? Mm -hmm. So like you, you could easily see a future where like a lot of like merchants are are part of some sort of federated side chain that has uh, kind of like assets like LBTC, which would allow them to immediately send and receive uh, confidential amounts of money to each other. So so I've started to under, really understand the appeal of this, but like basically if Pet Food Express is, is, is part of this federation, 
um, they could like immediately send, like they could take the lightning they've received and they could send, uh, you know, that asset in terms of LBTC to a bank, let's say. Um, and then the bank can just like wire them a bunch of fiat money if they wanted to. Right. Sure. So there's way, there, there's ways that this, this can work even, even today where Bitcoin's quite volatile. And I think like maybe 10, 20, 30 years from now, Bitcoin's volatility reduced, it gets seriously reduced and, and it, it's fine to use as this like medium of exchange right. right now, if you're worried about the volatility, um, there's ways to like settle out of it, right? Like every day, every couple of days, whatever. So, so that is an obstacle. Um, something something we have to consider and and you know i don't know if you want to, you have a comment on that piece. oh no I was, you, speaking of obstacles you mentioned in your article that for bitcoin to work the community would need to make you know trade-offs uh can you sort of delve in on that what you mean by those trade-offs and, and why those are important what i meant with obstacles was i think less technical i mean obviously there are technical obstacles but we sort of we seem to have a roadmap for how a lot of those are going to get solved I, I think the larger ones are with regard to settlement and liquidity and like you know does it really make sense for merchants to accept lightning from folks and how can they how can they effectively do business with that so that's number one big challenge number two would be like the of course the the legal and regulatory environment now what kind of gives me hope here is that again it's not that different from a cash-based ecosystem right and i know there's this like global war on cash or whatever and governments are trying to get folks to go digital so that they can spy on them more easily right but generally speaking uh, I, I think, especially in a free country and a democracy, we should be able to argue as citizens with consumer protection groups and um, different activist organizations and, and even some sympathetic companies and, and merchants, et cetera, that cash is a good thing. Cash is not a bad thing. And if lightning is the like evolution of cash in the digital environment, then, then, we, should ar- then we should sort of argue you know, that, it, that it stands to reason that it should be accepted. Sure. And there's actually, there's, a, there's an interesting technical reason why it may make sense. So Look, I understand regulators are going to be concerned about instant private payments that are untraceable. Like, I'm not like an anarchist. Like, I do understand they need to do their job with regard to catching actual bad guys, right? Okay. Um, The thing is, like, the way that lightning works is that, like, it's not super advisable and it doesn't seem to be in the future that, like, you would store a huge amount of money on your like lightning wallet, right? No, no. Uh, It's not, it's just not secure, right? Uh, or it's less secure than Bitcoin, right? So it, it stands to reason that at least in the near future, potentially longer than that, lightning payments will be relatively small. They'll be kind of like cash payments. It stands to reason that like lightning payments under a certain amount of money, and I think the overwhelming majority of them will be under a certain amount of money just because of the nature of kind of retail transactions and, and paying back friends. And, and the m- majority of things you would use lightning for, right? Um, will be relatively small. Let's say under a number I've picked $2,500 essentially um, based on a couple other ways that number has been used with regard to political donations, sure. et cetera. But I think there could be like a social contract where like people are like, okay, cool. Like lightning transactions under 2,500 are private. They're like cash. Stuff that's over 2,500, whether it's lightning or or Bitcoin base layer or like fiat money or whatever, like you, you may, you know, you may have to give up some of your um, privacy. You may have to like prove something with regard to other parts of your identity to get that sort of payment to go through. And I think people may just have to be okay with that. Right. Um, a big ask. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it might be a big ask, but like it, it, it's, you know, people, you know, you do have to ask yourself like, well, like what would happen if like somebody could just send like a hundred million dollars instantly to somebody else like without like secretly, like, you know, maybe that's a bad idea. I'm not sure. sure. Um, but but what I'm describing, me, by the way, no, I, yeah, I saw that. Well, I mean, 
kind of we can we can tell who, who meaning the bitcoin transaction well very yeah, large it was like 468 million dollars or something like that yeah but like we know like people can figure out what exchange is moving you know their 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 cold storage bitcoin somewhere else like that, that could be traced but, but the, what i'm what i'm basically saying though is that i think it's not just like people are going to be like oh i'm willing to give my, my privacy it's that the way that people use lightning over the next three four five six seven eight years whatever will trend towards smaller payments and therefore the regulators may not really see a problem with it. So it just might kind of work out. Like it sounds crazy, but like, but just if you think about the technical architecture of it, it may, it, it may work out. Now, large Bitcoin payments, like, like a home or a, or a, or a car. Yeah. That's a little, yeah. Bit. I mean like, like, like paying for tuition or buying a car or buying a house. I mean, these are all things where like the people selling the service, the people selling the home, the people selling the college education, the people selling the car mm -hmm. could reasonably be expected to demand different kinds of identification from you. Uh, they, they certainly do today. So, I mean, I, I wouldn't expect that to change. I'm not proposing like a radical, a radically different society. I'm, I'm just, I'm just like basically um, arguing for the preservation of cash and just like making the, the, the equivalent of digital cash widespread so that we can prevent the rise of the surveillance state. I mean, right. like me having to prove my identity to buy a house or buy a car or send my kids to college or buy like some ludicrously expensive piece of art, that's, that's not creating a surveillance state. What creates the <laughs> surveillance state is the, is the micro daily surveillance of all your little right. activities. Micro going to, yeah. yeah, going to buy coffee, dropping your kids off here, paying back a friend here buying a subscription to the New York times here, buying, buying a your dog treats, the wall street journal here. Yeah. But, but like, but more than that, like, like small things, like, I don't know, like for, for women, like maybe getting an abortion, things like that, you know, smaller things like where you may want, you may want to keep those things private. Right. So anyway, I, I think we're buying I cigarettes. Think, like maybe you don't want everybody to know that. And to, yeah, exactly. You're buying alcohol or embarrassing for some people, you know? Yeah, or whatever, or maybe like your favorite political magazine is embarrassing, or like would get you in sure. trouble with your employer. Absolutely, like small payments. You know, I just think you can make a good case that not only should they be private and like from a moral sense, number one, number two, that that keeping them private helps us fight the surveillance state and helps us keep our digital footprints small. That's the key. We want our digital footprints to be like relatively small. We don't want like somebody to like be able to hack into a database and find everything about us like in one second. Right. We want to really distribute mm -hmm. our digital identity. Right. Um, and I've tried to paint a picture in the essay of how that might look, but you number also, three, it would, it would be technically and, and sort of technically and regulatory feasible from a technical and regulatory perspective. So that like, this is a feasible scenario, I guess is what I'm trying to paint. And it's weird that like all these folks are so concerned about surveillance capitalism, the surveillance state. Uh, I think I think everybody shares concern over this. Yet so few people see like that that like the clear roadmap is that you basically need decentralized payment processing to get this done, and we have the roadmap for that with Bitcoin and Lightning. And the fact that so few people kind of see that that like the popularization of this kind of payment um, would really help us in this regard, and and should be you know advertised and promoted heavily in this area. So that's kind of what I'm trying to get at with the sure. with, with the essay. Yeah, and I feel like the other side of this is you mentioned privacy in the future might be somewhat of a luxury. 
we interviewed Jameson Lott for our first episode, uh, just about the lengths that he went to erase his digital footprint, which was pretty incredible. Um, Amazing article. Yeah, that, that it, it was he also awesome. did a, yeah, it cost him like 30 grand. And so, yeah, so I mean, it already is sort of a luxury. But, but you gotta, but remember, he was, this is very different from what I'm describing. He was like trying to buy a house and a car and basically totally. have his entire life completely in the dark. That's totally. not what I'm, I'm not saying we need to get there. No, uh, no, no. That, that, I, I that, that may be... I was shifting to more of like, what are you doing beyond like advocating for lightning um, to increase your, your privacy? Right, right, right. But just, that's an important point though. Like it may have cost him some ridiculous amount of money <laughs> right. um, to, to, to be like totally private. But Which people can't, like the normal person just can't do that. No, but maybe the normal person can, even if they don't have a lot of money, maybe they can have, like if they, if we can start popularizing the usage of, of lightning payments instead of sure. credit cards and social media for payments. I mean, cause that's really what it's going to be. Like, are you going to use credit cards? Well, credit cards are eventually going to get eaten by social media companies. So it's really going to be like, are you going to use social media to buy things in the future in terms of retail payments to small payments? Right. Um, or are you going to use something like lightning that's more sovereign and private? And I think there's a good chance that some social media companies actually adopt lightning. Like, look, obviously if you look at the square Twitter thing, like there's, there's some interesting stuff there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, social media companies like obviously going to try and create their own money so they can like doubly benefit from not only the data surveillance, but also the creation of a new currency that can compete with nation state currencies, a la Libra and probably whatever Google and Amazon are going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, right. But really like, this is what it comes down to is like, Let's just make sure that these like really widely available things that, that the average person can afford can give them some, some, some kind of privacy. But like when you look at what Jameson is doing, yeah, I mean, like in addition to private payments, you kind of need two other, we need three kinds of encryption to protect us. We need first and foremost payments encryption where, where I think we're, we at least have a roadmap. We have the technology to do it and, and it's mm-hmm. going to, it's going to be difficult, but like, we know, we know what we sort of need to do in that area, but payments encryption, I think is like so critically important. Communications encryption is, is also really important. And again, we have kind of like, we know what we need to do. We need to popularize stuff like signal, even as you're, as you're seeing yesterday or um, like today, th- there's noise about um, Facebook trying to make, basically trying to exploit more of the metadata, I guess, that it can read from WhatsApp transactions. Surprise, trying to basically. Surprise. Yeah, I mean, you know, basically trying to learn more about users from their WhatsApp transactions. So I need to be careful about communications encryption. But, um, you know, I think using more stuff like Signal, um, especially if you can marry these things together, like if Signal and Lightning could could have a baby, that would be great. Yeah. Um, But um, the third area is the most challenging, and and that's like personal information. And, And there's a couple different ways to address this. The first one is what I hint at in my article is essentially like if, if we're just like paying for stuff using lightning and we're not disclosing a lot of our information about us when we're paying people and interacting with people in a financial sense, then, then our, then our identity, the identity thing sort of becomes less important uh, because we're not disclosing it very often. So that's kind of like one way that, that I think I'd, I would sort of seem, seem, seems to be reasonable to approach this idea. The second one is, is something that like people at like Microsoft are trying to push uh with like the ion platform yeah. which would yeah. essentially be a way for you to have like a secure personal identifier that you would i guess in their case actually lives on the bitcoin blockchain but you would use it essentially as like a private key to gain access to your data 
um, and have control over it. And, and you'd have a choice as to where you store that. Um, the th third kind of solution or, or area would be what folks are trying to do with zero knowledge in, in, in encryption and cryptography, which is to me really, really important and fascinating. Um, this idea that I could like have control over my data and then choose selectively what to disclose about it to folks. Right. Like I could, I could, I could like prove my age to the bartender or the, the, the bouncer at the bar without disclosing my home address using an app, right? Like, sure. and they would accept that. Or I could like prove to an employer, you know, that I'm, I'm totally qualified to work for them or, or go to school at a particular university without disclosing my home address or um, like everything about my family, things right. that they the, don't need to know. The $50 background check, right? Yeah, so this is a way of being like, hey, you know, I have all this stuff in order. I can prove it to you without disclosing it to you. Sure. Now, the, 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 there are several big questions. First of all, there's just like not enough people working in that space. The, the, the math and the tech just isn't there. Mm -hmm. um, but second of all, like it does sort of still, I don't want to say it like keeps an old problem alive, but like at the end of the day, you're still relying on like the classic notion of identity, right? You're just obscuring it. So you're still putting your your home address and your eye color and your weight and things like that into some sort of database. It's just, you're making it less available. Right. So, so it, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't seem too revolutionary to me. I mean, it might be like an evolution. Um, but that certainly needs to be something we consider. Right. And that's why I think that the, the lightning thing is so interesting is because it doesn't, it, it just makes a world where like we're disclosing our identity a lot less often. Yeah. It's um, not a dramatic upheaval of what we're already doing. We're just kind of, like you said, obscuring those uh, relationships, those micro relationships. Yeah. And like, again, like, it, you know, there are going to be times when you need to reveal certain things about you. Uh, of course, when you go to the hospital, when you, um, again, buy a house, you buy a car, sure. when you pay tuition. But like 98% of your financial interactions, going to the store or buying something online or registering for a service or paying for a subscription to something on the internet sure. or buying a public transit ticket or gas or something like that. All the, all the things that you do on a daily basis, like buying lunch, going out to lunch with friends, getting drinks, all these different things, buying books from the bookstore, all the things that make up like the overwhelming bulk of your payments, these things can be private and they can like not disclose anything meaningful, meaningful about you at all. And that really helps us. Again, it really, really helps us fight the surveillance state in a way that I just haven't seen any other construct um, right. reasonably um, proved to do. How do you feel about the opportunity for people to actually disclose their information for a share of the profit. Cause I've heard people kind yeah. of toss that idea around before and it sounds kind of interesting if you're willing to be a part of it. Well, I don't think it's possible unless we can have more control over our data. Exactly. Right. Right. I, I could see a situation where I go to pet food express and I walk in and I, I, I pay with lightning and then I get a pop-up that says something like, Hey, do you want to participate in like our advertising program? If so, you know, we'll pay you X amount. Yes so you or hear no. the details of what will be, you know, released yeah. to the third party. Yeah, exactly. Sure. And then you could yeah. be like, okay, fine. And maybe once a month on your phone, you get these, like, you get these messages from, from all time, all kinds of companies or maybe the government or whatever. You could go back in your lightning wallet. Yeah. And you, and you could, you could, you could get paid in lightning. No, I mean, <laughs> there, there are pitfalls there. I mean, sure. you're basically saying that like, probably people who, who have a greater need for small amounts of money will, will not live private lives. 
So that's something that I'm concerned about. But generally speaking, I think the option for people to have this is way better than the existing, way better than the existing system where everybody, you know, involuntarily or just like, you know, without knowing it gives up everything about them. Sure. So, so what I'm describing is definitely better. It may, it may not be ideal and I still have concerns, but it's certainly better than the existing system. Yeah. I think at the very least people are looking for some sort of transparency with these relationships they have with large companies. I mean, that was kind of blown up with Zuckerberg, you know, last year with the hearings. It's like, wait, you did what with my information? I didn't know that. And it's all in that, you know, the, the, the fine print and the uh, agreement that you sign. And it's just kind of snuck under the table, you know, without you knowing. But um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, could, I could see that being problematic, sharing your information on a voluntary basis. And then I could, you know, people could even change their habits once they know that they're profiting off of their behavior. So that there's could a, be an interesting side effect too. There's a good book called Nudge about this thing called libertarian paternalism or choice architecture in the way that certain public programs and services are offered or even sort of like even sort of um, consumer stuff. So the, the two examples I'll give are, you know, like back in the day when you would install software on your computer and it would be mm-hmm. like, do you want to do the like, do you want to do like the default or like the custom for exports right. install? Right. right. So this is like the classic choice architecture, like 98% of people will just do whatever the company wants. Right. Um, which I'm sure at that point included like massive you know, infringements on your privacy. And then like experts would, would opt out and they would choose something else. So this is like a popular thing that we, we could do where like, again, you'd get like this, uh, maybe in the, in the, you'd flip it for lightning and say, Hey, like, you know, we're not going to disclose any, or, you know, obviously we can't take any of your data unless you give it to us. However, if you do want to give it to us here, here's what you would gain. Um, the other interesting option I thought was, was rather fascinating was in Sweden, I guess. Uh, maybe 15 plus years ago, the government offered people the option to build their own like private pension portfolio versus like the default one that the government would build for you. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it was interesting to see the sort of mixed results from that. Um, but there are these like things that we can do with choice architecture where, where we can have people like um, opt out if they want to. Right. So right. I guess like you want to tilt that towards uh, consumer protection and, you know, obviously Lightning does that natively, meaning it doesn't disclose anything about you. Um, if you want to disclose stuff about you, like if you want to uh, disclose what about is, what is about to happen, that I'm about to buy some dog food to a bunch of third party companies and advertisers, et cetera. Again, like maybe 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 you you choose to have that. But this requires like a much more robust like data market, essentially. And maybe in the maybe in the near future there will be like these like crazy data markets. I mean, uh, you know, that that do geolocation and, and medical and food and agra and, and different kinds of data from different public transit and parking and all kinds of things. Sure. I mean, maybe that maybe the data markets will get very rich and robust. And maybe that's inevitable. But like let's just kind of protect our our own personal data. Let's at least be able to stay private. That'll keep us well insulated against against both of these kind of threats of, of the surveillance state and the sort of like, you know, end game of, of, I guess, surveillance capitalism. And I think people need to realize that Bitcoin and lightning are our potential way to get there. Right. So I have to ask, um, you know, first, is this too good to be true? You even asked that yourself. And if adoption does fail, how does your roadmap differ? Right. Um, well, like I said, it's almost certainly too good to be true. I mean, the most likely scenario is that this sort of like if we think about three kinds of money 
we have like fiat money or government money. We have corporate money, which could be something like Libra. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have Bitcoin, uh, which is like the people's money or just like decentralized money. The, the most likely scenario is probably that like we see some sort of like uh, evolution of the government and corporate monies and they really dominate. And and we give up all of our privacy and rights and we live as slaves in some sort of dystopic uh, future uh, horrible society. I mean, maybe that's the most likely scenario, but I just, I have to have hope based on a couple different factors that, that maybe like a mixed, uh, future will, will be, will be possible where, where people can opt to use something like lightning and preserve some of their privacy and freedom. Um, it does seem to be reasonable for several, several reasons, uh, you know, including both the fact that this technology is kind of better than centralized technology for a lot of things and that people may actually want to preserve their privacy, which doesn't seem to be the case today. Um, but I, I really think that we need more conversation and debate and experimentation in this area. And, mm-hmm. and, and not, I'm not talking about in the Bitcoin community. I'm talking about like in the mainstream community. Like we need people who are reading like the Financial Times and the Wall Street Journal and The Economist to be like talking about how can we meaningfully create private payments? Like this is so, so key. So, mm-hmm my hope is that we can help break this conversation through to the mainstream um, or else again, you know, we, we kind of, we, we can look at what's happening in China today for a glimpse into our future uh, if we don't do something. Right. Right. <laughs> uh, it's kind of scary to think about. Um, that's it. That's all the questions I have for, for your essay, but I did want to ask you um, if there's anything else going on, not just in like the Bitcoin community right now, but you know, at the uh, human rights foundation, like, is there anything you know interesting going on or exciting or, you know, kind of scary that's kind of on the front of your mind? Well, for your listeners, I mean, the human rights foundation is, is a nonprofit that focuses on protecting human rights and freedom in, in authoritarian societies or in dictatorships around the world um, where, where people have a lot less rights and freedoms and accountability and ability to, you know, hold their government accountable um, than we do, let's say in a country like the United States. So we often work with folks in countries like China, North Korea, Saudi Arabia, Cuba, et cetera. Um, and that, that really drove my personal interest in learning about Bitcoin and other kinds of technology that can protect people. At the very moment, one of the people that we support is an activist in Hong Kong. His name is Johnson Young. And he's one of the, he was one of the sort of initial student organizers of the Umbrella Movement um, you know, a half decade ago um, that, that sort of rose up in many ways against um, the China's sort of creeping, uh, at least the Communist Party of China's sort of creeping control over Hong Kong. And that obviously exploded several months ago with these massive million person protests where something like more than a quarter of Hong Kong's population has gone on the streets to protest. Uh, Which is a particular, by uh, the way. That is it's, it's totally, totally amazing. And, and it, it's, there's a lot to be learned from Hong Kong. I mean, people have stood up and basically said, no, we don't want this new law, which would basically allow the Chinese government to extradite anybody from Hong Kong to Beijing, right? Which is a huge, um, you know, uh, blow against the sovereignty of Hong, the Hong Kong court system, et cetera. Um, so people basically stood up and they've managed to push off this referendum on this um, on editing this law, right? So that's kind of like a temporary victory. Um, but what the Chinese government has done is, you know, they, they've got this ineffectual leader, Carrie Lam, who, who, you know, we're not sure if they're going to take her out and put somebody in more, maybe more strong or whatever. Um, but what they have done is they've started to adopt this idea of like, well, if you can't beat them, join them. So 
rather than just have this like government try and like pass these laws um they're trying to create like chaos in the society by 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 creating these like basically these like um paramilitary protesters so there are these like these thugs basically these like pro-china thugs that the government is now funding to go around hong kong and do like counter protests and like the white shirts right yeah and be violent yeah exactly so like it's all mysterious and scary but basically like this is like certainly one way that the government will, will react is to do things like this. Um, and in the midst of all this chaos, like one of the protesters that we support, one of the students, the democracy leaders, his name's Johnson Young. So he was arrested today or earlier today. Um, so we don't know what's going on with him. So we're trying to like push for his freedom, but Hong Kong offers like a, it's very important for all of us. I mean, if we can like stand up to China and, and keep Hong Kong free, I mean, that says a lot for the global uh, outlook for democracy. If we can't do it, it says a lot for the global outlook of dictatorship, right? right. I think what you're watching is people struggling in Hong Kong, Hong Kong with, with some of the things that are relevant to the conversation we had today. Like people like Johnson in Hong Kong, when they were protesting, they would like use cash to buy their public transit cards that the government couldn't spy on them. They would use cash to buy burner SIM cards for their cell phones. They could use telegram without giving away their identity. Right. So cash has been like an important part of organizing to protest in Hong Kong and the Hong Kongers are like the smartest protesters. They've got like all kinds of cool sign language for like, you know, how to communicate with big groups of people. Um, They are immediately able to disable like smoke grenades using like all kinds of like street, uh, just things that are lying out on the street. It's kind of amazing if you watch them. They're like That's so cool. Evolved so fast. Yeah. So we're looking at like the future of protest, right? In the age of surveillance, and wow. they use face masks to fool facial recognition cameras. I mean, it's super, super cool stuff, and and they're very, very inspiring, and they've done some amazing things. But at the end of the day, the government still has the monopoly of violence, right? Sure. So this is something important to note about protest: is armed protest is not a good idea. I mean, because you're going to lose if you're going to. It's like the idea of fighting Mike, Mike Tyson in the boxing ring. Like, it's just not going to work out so well. Um, right. or, or, you know, you, you, you want to play a different game. So that's why peaceful protest is always so effective. Mm-hmm. I think in a study of 300 social movements in the last 100 years, um, peaceful protest movements are like 30% successful, whereas violent ones are only like 5% successful or something like that. Um, right. And it fails to be a so, protest. It, it becomes warfare or a revolution. Yeah, and you're going to and you're going to lose like cuz yeah. the government you know has monopoly of violence. Um, yeah. so you need to find other ways and other tactics and you know the Hong Kongers seem to be doing that but but it is scary and, and they're risking a lot and uh, again they're kind of on the front line of 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 freedom and that that may be coming to you know you sometime soon. So pay attention to what's happening there. Special thanks to Alex Gladstein for coming on the show. The Bitcoin Magazine podcast is a BTC Media produced podcast on the Let's Talk Bitcoin network. Theme music provided by Billy Sly from the Crypto Cantina. Visit BitcoinMagazine.com for more in-depth news, analysis, and resources about the most successful peer-to-peer currency. And make sure to follow us on Twitter at Bitcoin Magazine. Find and subscribe to the show wherever else you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate us. Remember, it really helps us improve the show. Thanks again for tuning in. We'll see you guys next time.